I'm Richard Hollingham, and this time in a nautically-themed Planet Earth podcast, how much of our electricity could be generated by tidal energy and the challenges of monitoring turtle mating habits. It's very hard to observe how many individuals are there, what they are doing, and very hard to observe who they're mating with and where and when. More on turtle conservation efforts later. Well, this time I'm on the banks of the River Mersey in Liverpool. Behind me, the beautifully restored former warehouses of the Albert Dock, the dramatic new Museum of Liverpool, and the dome and towers of the Royal Liver Building, and the liver birds at the top, just about visible through the mist, and lapping at the stone quayside just beneath me, the Mersey River, a kilometre across there's Birkenhead and the Wirral to the south. Well, I have to confess, you can't see a great deal this morning. There's a mist just hovering over the water, although right above us there's blue sky. And I'm with Judith Wolfe and Nick Yates from the National Oceanography Centre. And they've been investigating the potential of this estuary and others around the UK for generating electricity by exploiting tidal energy. Now, Judith, what do we mean by tidal energy? I suppose we know what the tides are. What's tidal energy? Tidal energy is um, the total amount of um, kinetic and potential energy in tides. If we uh, consider Liverpool itself, we have a 10-metre tidal range at Springs. That is one of the highest in the UK, almost the highest in the world. That energy can be captured in various ways by running a barrage with turbines. The other kind of energy is the kinetic energy of the flow of the tide. And in straits and estuary miles like here, we can get really large flows, which could be several knots of water speed, and that energy can also be harnessed. Ten metres here. So between the quay and the water below, that that rises in a tide by ten metres. That's between low tide and high tide, yes, on the maximum spring tidal range. So potentially a phenomenal amount of energy there. That's right, yes. The amount of energy you can get from a tide in an estuary is related to the area that's behind the mouth of the estuary, the area inside the estuary and the tidal range at the mouth. Now, Nick, you, you were an engineer and you've been studying the, the potential of, the, of tides around the UK. What did you actually do? The study in question was a computer simulation that took a computer model... And into that model, we can see the tidal wave coming in, and then into the model, we're able to simulate uh, barrages in particular across estuaries, because as Judith said, the energy you get is proportional to the area and also the tidal range. And so the ideal place for a barrage to exploit tidal range, which is a physical structure which allows you to delay tidal motions and get a water level difference like conventional hydropower, and actually behind you, you can't see the other side, but the Mersey, you've got geography helping you, it's only a kilometre across. So for a relatively short physical structure, you can then place turbines in that and get, relatively speaking, a large amount of energy. So just to give you an example for the Mersey, uh, that would be something like a terawatt hour, which is a difficult number to get your head on, but you're probably talking somewhere between half a million and a million houses electricity from that one structure. So how much energy could you generate in the UK from the tide? Uh, We think it's going to be at least 20%. 15% from tidal range, with barrages over the major estuaries, plus 5% from tidal stream, which is from the the, the fast motion of currents. And and what sort of of structures... uh, 
like a conventional hydroelectric plant with with turbines or we see these these wave generators with almost like sort of bobbing buoys going up and down yeah the structure for tidal range obviously you need something that's impermeable because you're delaying the water so uh, it's very much like Lorance or if you like it's like a harbour actually it's very similar technology so you'd have rock and then you would have probably concrete caissons where you've got turbines and sluice gates and what about the environmental consequences of, of putting something like that on an estuary like this one here well, some of the environmental concerns are very much about intertidal habitats in estuaries. Estuaries are very productive areas and um, are very important for migratory birds and fish, particularly some of the mud waders and feeding birds on the, on the estuary. Many people are concerned that the, the habitats that they exploit will disappear. One of the things we did in an earlier study was to actually estimate how we could best minimise that impact. If you run the barrage on the ebb and flood generation you can actually modify the the amount of habitat that's lost and and minimize the amount that's lost. Now you looked at this across the UK so different sites presumably some are more suitable than others. Yes that's true I mean for a tidal barrage we're looking for the maximum tidal range and uh, the Mersey is particularly nice because it has a very narrow mouth and therefore you would build the minimum length of dam across it in order to capture a a moderately um, large amount of energy so the energy would be relatively cheap here and so the dam wouldn't have to go the right away across the mouth it would just go across a, a small amount it would have to close off the estuary completely but the tide would still flow through the dam through the sluices and turbines uh, and what about shipping because you are disrupting the the flow of the the river not just for for fish and for wildlife but also for shipping That's right. So um, usually in the design you would build a ship lock and also fish ladders. So there would be some provision for minimising those impacts. And how does this compare, say Nick, with wind power and and other forms of alternative energy generation? Well, I mean, the key thing with tidal, it is the renewable energy you can set your watch by. And so that predictability in particular is extremely important. It's funny, I was just reading recently from Ofgem some figures about the variability of wind, which went from 9 megawatts to 3 gigawatts within the space of three days. But that's not to say it's an either-or. I actually think we're going to need all of them, particularly to replace what we get from fossil fuels, but also if we move to electric vehicles, demand's going to go up. Uh, Just one point additionally, if I may, to raise about tidal range. You can also get them from so-called lagoons, which is a structure not across an estuary. And so some of the concerns about environmental modification become less, but the economics are not quite so attractive unless subsidies change because you're building a longer structure. Instead of a short structure, it's essentially half, half a circle. And Nick, do you think this will happen then? There's, there's an interesting question. Um, certainly, uh, I have to declare in a, in a different job, that there, there, there is a project ongoing uh, looking at a lagoon, so there is one that's being proposed. Uh, whether it will happen or not is very much a matter of political will, but in terms of the energy mix, I think it's important to have this option. I also think it's important to have a good feel for the size of the resource for planning, and after that, it's very much down to the, the, the planning process and, and political will. Nick Yates and Judith Wolfe, thank you. And we'll put some pictures up of our recording on our Facebook page. Although, with the mist here, you won't see much of the Mersey today. Uh, We're also on Twitter, and do visit Planet Earth online for the latest news from the natural world. 
and to catch up with four and a half years worth now of Planet Earth podcasts. To find us, just search for Planet Earth Online. The hawksbill turtle has, as the name suggests, a bird-like beak. But it's the turtle's highly decorative shell that's put it on the critically endangered list. Despite an international ban, hawksbill turtle shells continue to be traded on the black market and numbers of these animals continue to decline. Well, the hawksbill lives in tropical waters, but because these turtles spend most of their lives at sea, it's been difficult to assess exact numbers and very little's known about their mating habits. We do know that females come to lay their eggs on the ecotourism resort island of Cousine in the Seychelles, and recently published research will help conservationists plan for the future. Sue Nelson went to the University of East Anglia, which led the study to meet two of those involved in this research and first spoke to molecular ecologist David Richardson. The hawksbill turtle is a a very beautiful, elegant marine turtle. It's probably about half a metre long to a metre. It's got that classic kind of tortoiseshell patterning on its back and that's why the hawksbill turtle was so hunted. This particular island in the Seychelles, how big a population are there or how important is this site for the turtles? It is an important site for the turtles in that part of the western Indian Ocean. It does seem to be that that population that exists around the Seychelles is kind of unique to that area and within the Seychelles, although there's over a hundred small islands. Many of those islands have lots of people on. They're not protected. There's only a few beaches where it's got the right kind of beach, the right kind of sand, and where there's protection so the turtles can lay their eggs without being hindered. And uh, Cuisine Island is uh, one of those islands, and it has quite a healthy population of between 50 and 100 females that come up to lay every year and produce offspring that way. Now, it's been on the endangered list since 1996, so I was quite surprised, considering that that's the case, that apparently so little is known about its mating habits. Why is that? Well, the real problem with turtles is they spend most of their life widely dispersed throughout the oceans, living mainly underwater, and so it's very hard to observe how many individuals are there, what they are doing, and very hard to observe who they're mating with and where and when. It's unlike looking at birds where you can see them in a tree. It's very hard to observe what they're doing at any point. Is this why, then, you decided to look at the genetic material of the turtles? Because it would be an easier way of finding out what's going on. Exactly. Because we only ever see the females come up to lay eggs on the beaches every couple of years we never see the males so by looking at the DNA of the females and also then looking at the DNA of the offspring the nestlings that come out we can take that DNA in the nestlings compare the DNA that must have come from the mother but also work out which DNA that's in the offspring must have come from the father and by doing that we can reconstruct the DNA that must have been in the father. We can reconstruct how many different males must have been fathering the offspring. Now that research is done here at the laboratory by one of your PhD students. Carl Phillips, he's been doing running this project, he's been doing the, the genetics and the field work for this. He's been looking at that DNA, matching up the offspring with their mother 
and then reconstructing the DNA of a father and determining which male mated up with each female. Well, in that case, I think my next post of call is definitely the labs and to uh, find out from uh, Carl himself what the results have been. Indeed, yes. Welcome to the lab. You'll uh, have to forgive the sound of the air conditioning and the smell as we pass through of the Drosophila breeding laboratories. This is the business end of it, as it were. Oh, and so, you've got a large refrigerator here. Yep. Opened so. it up. And lots of colourful plastic boxes. There's yeah. a blue one. So inside each of these plastic boxes is 100 tubes of ethanol, each tube containing a very small piece of, of turtle tissue. If I can find the one on the box I'm looking for and show you the kind of samples that we're collecting from these animals in the field. Which part of the turtle is the sample actually from? So from the adult females we collect the sample from the trailing edge of the front flippers and we try to do that when the adult is laying its nest. When an adult female turtle is laying her nest she goes into a kind of trance and she really becomes completely oblivious to her. So the procedure of collecting a tissue sample it's going to be a bit uncomfortable for the animal, but if it's done at a time when she's in that kind of trance, it's almost like she's under an anaesthetic. She really doesn't She's react too busy focusing yeah. on what she's actually her doing, yes. Are, her eggs and her nest. Yeah. Uh, so we do have to, though, wait until she's actually started laying the eggs. But prior to that point, when she's digging the nest chamber, when she's prospecting for a nest site, she's extremely vulnerable to disturbance, so we stay very well hidden or very far back. So the sample itself is incredibly small, isn't it? Yeah. Just getting a an pair adult. of tweezers to pop in there. So here's a sample oh from an adult goodness. female. So that a, is just a couple of millimetres square, effectively, yep. isn't it? And from that, I'll then take a razor blade and take a very small sliver of that, and that will yield enough DNA to do a DNA profile of that female. The hatching ones are even smaller. These really are tiny. And these are taken... And go the tweezers again different tube this time oh yes that is <laughs> so a sort of a, almost like a one millimeter yeah, square effectively it, that that really is tiny so that's that's taken from above the right back leg of the hatchling when just before it's on when it's on its way to the sea so the, the flesh the flesh of the shell is still soft at this time and we take the biopsy tool take a little semicircle of flesh and there's good published evidence that this kind of sampling doesn't cause any long-term harm to the hatchlings. So female turtle has laid a nest, we've monitored that nest as it's hatching, we take all the hatchlings, we put them into a bucket, we pick 20 hatchlings at random from that bucket, take a small flesh sample from each of them and then the hatchlings are released to the sea. They're allowed to finish their scampering down the beach. And what have you found then from examining the DNA from these samples? What we've found is that the typical female hawksbill in our population tends to mate with just a single male. Now, within a nesting season, a female hawksbill will lay four to five clutches of about 160 or so eggs. A bit of variation in that, going from as, as low as 70 up to 220, 230 eggs. But five of these clutches, about two weeks apart. Now if we look at the sequential clutches of a particular female, so she's laid five clutches, we look at one, two, three, four, we find that it's the same male for each female who has fathered all of her offspring. So she has the same partner each time, she's been monogamous effectively. She's, she's, she's been monogamous but what we don't think that she's going out there faithfully to the same gentleman waiting uh, you know, romantically out in the, in the warm tropical waters for her. We think 
that there's no indication that that's that's going on from from what people have seen of turtles in the in, in the sea. So it it's far far more likely that she is mating once at the beginning of the season, storing the sperm from that single mating and then using it to fertilize all of the sequential eggs. And when you when you think about that, that's that's quite an impressive feat. She's laying five clutches of of 160 eggs. So. 800 eggs, all fertilised by a single mating. That's pretty special. Gosh, so with sort of gaps in between there. So storing that sperm, and then however many, is it weeks or months later? So it's it's typically about two weeks between clutches. So after five clutches, it could be five, six clutches, talking 75 days, she might have stored that sperm. It's remained viable all that time. To us as mammals, this is quite remarkable, but sperm storage is an extremely prevalent tactic in many animal groups. It's very and had common. this ever been discovered before for this turtle? Yes and no. So a small study had looked at the nests of 10 females on the other side of the Indian Ocean, but prior to that there had been nothing on the Hawksville. One other thing I should point out is that a very small number of our females, about 10%, had mated with a second, second male. But what was particularly striking about this was that just as if a female had been singly mated and we see the same one father across all five of her clutches. If she were mated twice, it would be the same two males across all of her clutches. And what's more, those two males would have roughly the same proportions of paternity consistently across their nests. So she's stored two yeah. male sperm in, ma- in sort yeah. of equal proportions she, almost? Not necessarily equal proportions. One male often has a larger share, but he then has the consistently larger share. But if he has 70% of paternity in the first nest, he tends to have roughly 70% in the last nest. It doesn't look like she's sort of mating with one male, packing his sperm into the, the back of her sperm storage reproductive organs, then putting another male sperm in on top of that and then using them sequentially. It does look like they, they're, they're mixed up. And that 10% of multiply mated fork spills is quite low compared with what we've seen in, in other marine turtle species. So can this information then that you've discovered, can this help? with the conservation of these endangered turtles? Yes, it can. One of the most important ways, as, as I see it, is that it gives us a genetic census of the, of the number of breeding turtles that are out there. Without doing this kind of study, you wouldn't know how many breeding males are contributing to your population. You, could, you might see 50 females nesting on your beach, but if what if they've all been mated by the same male? We don't see that. In fact, every single female in our sample had been mated with a different individual male. Each female, it was the same male for all of her offspring, but every single female had mated with a different individual male. That to us is is highly indicative that there's a large number of males out there. And that's very good from a conservation genetics perspective. It suggests there's a large population. And if there's a large breeding population, then the population is less susceptible to negative processes such as inbreeding, processes that could further damage the, the conservation future. So for once this sounds like quite good news yes. <laughs> from a conservation uh, point of view. It's very good news and coupled with the fact that on, on some of these protected islands in the Seychelles the Hawksbill breeding population is now going up. I'd say that as things stand on, based on this that the future looks quite promising. Carl Phillips and David Richardson from the University of East Anglia with good news for the endangered Hawksbill sea turtle. They were talking to Sue Nelson. And that's the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. Do visit Planet Earth online for features, news and comment from the natural world. I'm Richard Hollingham from the foggy banks of the River Mersey in Liverpool. Thanks for listening.